Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine South Florida in the summer going through boxes that are 10 or 12 years old in an unair-conditioned barracks. I mean, it's dirty, it's hot, it's muggy. It's just, it's no fun at all. Yeah, I doubt there are many people who'd say sifting through boxes of old company records is their idea of a good time. But that's exactly where lawyers Dave Gorman and Greg Shell find themselves in 2005. They're actually in one of the barracks, which used to house sugarcane cutters, and it's now being used to store farm records. They're trying to dig up evidence for their upcoming trial, while a lawyer representing the sugarcane company they've sued is watching their every move. But you know... They made the best of it, all things considered. We knew it would be hot and dirty inside. And so we were in very casual clothes, jeans, whatever. But the lawyer from the company came out in his suit. And we we, we couldn't resist. We said, we're going to stay in there longer than we would ordinarily just to watch this guy just melt and sweat through his fancy suit. And we did. I'm, I'm sorry, we, we were very immature, but we took great joy in that. So they had that going for them. And there are plenty more thrills still to come. Greg and Dave are staring down at... Boxes and boxes and boxes of records. And inside the boxes... You've got reams of paper that show you all kinds of things that you don't really care about. You know, you still have to look to make sure that you're not going to miss anything. They're sifting, 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 hoping, hoping. There could be a needle in this haystack. They'd lost three trials already. So they're really looking for new evidence. Something to prove the companies had underpaid their workers. Then... I remember opening a box and seeing these envelopes and pulling an envelope out and looking at it. Well, what's in it? Oh, it's cane tickets. And then looking at what's written on it and realizing what it had to be. Cane tickets are basically like time cards. They list the date, the amount of sugarcane a cutter has cut in a day, a row, half row, a quarter of a row, and the number of hours they've supposedly worked. And there were masses of them. But then the lawyers realized that on the outside of each envelope, there was something else written. Dave's curious. It's like, wait a minute. He turns to Greg. I called him over. I said, hey, check this out. And he did, and we both immediately knew what it was. It had two times. It had a time in the morning and a time in the afternoon. And we quickly realized what those were. Those were the actual time the crew had worked. Their realization? The times on the envelopes were actually a log of the bus journeys made by the cutters each day. There was a notation of who the bus driver was, and he wrote the time that he left the camp and the time, the exact time that they got back. But there was something else that made Dave go, wait a minute. Then you pull out the cane tickets and you see that the the bus driver times we know are accurate. And they don't match up 
to the times that are on the Kane tickets. Like, the Kane ticket says the cutters worked six hours, but the bus driver time says they were at the field for eight hours. The tickets had been fabricated to cheat the workers on the hours. It was the kind of evidence they'd been looking for, hoping for. We found proof that we could prove down to the minute how many hours each worker had really worked and how much he should have been paid. It took a few minutes, but then we said, this is amazing. Because I've done this sort of cases with uh, fabrication of work documents for 40 years. I've never seen something this amazing. They proved the lie. We just sort of just looked at each other and said, wow, this was going to be a case we should clearly win. And we felt very confident. It was nice to know that, that we could win on this. We said, gee, if we can get this case to the court, either a jury or a judge, we will win this because the evidence is overwhelming. To put it in a more Dave-like way, the sugarcane company they're suing? So now they're screwed. I'm Celeste Headley, and from iHeartMedia, Imagine Audio, and the teams at Weekday Fun and Novel, this is Big Sugar, Episode 9, Trench Warfare. We've gotten to know the world of sugar pretty well over the past eight episodes. We've met some of the men from the Caribbean who worked tirelessly cutting sugarcane on Florida's farms. Yeah, that's a very, 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 very hard job. That's the hardest job in the whole wide world. We've met the investigators and journalists who've exposed the industry's treatment of the workers. I saw that they were being mistreated and deceived, and I felt ashamed as an American they've shown a light on Big Sugar's political influence. They are, without a doubt, the most powerful agricultural industry and one of the most powerful industries in Florida. They have armies of of the best lobbyists that money can buy. They've got it worked out. And uncovered their PR strategies. It's been behind closed doors. You know, they really have had a strategy to influence the public. And we've heard from the lawyers who tried to take on this leviathan industry. It seemed so easy at the time. It seemed so straightforward. I mean, I have never done a case that was more clear-cut. But let's face it, up until this point, failed. It had to have been disappointing at the minimum. Oh, um, risk-cutting disappointing. (laughs) And it's like, Jesus, you know, what what else can go wrong here? To recap, if we go back to the start, the lawyer's original case against the sugar companies was based on something called a clearance order. It was written on behalf of the sugarcane companies for the Department of Labor, kind of like a contract. It laid out what the job would entail so they could get visas for the men to travel to the U.S., The lawyer's main argument was that, according to this clearance order, the men should be paid $5.30 per ton of cane they cut. However, in reality, they were paid more like $3 to $4 per ton. That was their theory, anyway. And so back in 1989, the team of lawyers sued five sugarcane companies. It was first filed as a class action on behalf of some 20,000 sugarcane cutters from the Caribbean. A judge agreed with their argument and issued a $51 million summary judgment. Case closed. The companies would have to shell out tens of millions to the workers and a couple of million to the lawyers, too. But this was quickly overturned on appeal. Then, the case was split up into five jury trials, one for each of the sugar companies. By 2005, more than 15 years into the legal battle, One of the companies, U.S. Sugar, had settled. But each cutter received just hundreds of dollars. Three of the cases had gone to trial so far, and the sugarcane cutter lawyers had lost every single one. There was just one case left. This is when one of the lawyers you've heard from quite a bit already, Greg Shell, becomes a key player. 
He's been helping out already, but in 2005, he joins Dave Gorman to fight this final skirmish. And the guy who initiated the whole thing, Edward Tudnam, is out. Possibly because of personal disagreements. Possibly, as we heard in a previous episode, because he signed over his life rights for a film to be made by Robert De Niro's production company. So anyway, Greg takes his place. Greg Shell and I were co-counsel. Uh, which was a pleasure for me, frankly. Uh, Greg's a very bright guy. He knows a lot. A bit of background on Greg. He'd gone to Harvard Law, and when he graduated in the 1970s, he could have earned big bucks in commercial or criminal law. Instead, he took a job in public interest law, representing farm workers. It was a job that would be very fulfilling in terms of the contribution you were going to make to society. You were going to be sent to a remote, probably uncomfortable place, and also that you would not be, you would not realize much in the way of income from it. And all that was true. Uncomfortable, low paying, but somehow it appealed to Greg. I said, well, gee, this sounds like something I'll try. Greg flourished. He was suing farms and farmers and getting farm workers, often migrants from Mexico or the Caribbean, better conditions or pay was the challenge of being David versus Goliath in every single case, particularly taking on the larger farms, which had all sorts of legal resources. And we were always undermanned, but we won the majority of the cases, which was extra rewarding. Even though the work is tough, it suits Greg. He's a frenetic guy. In fact, editing the tape of his interview has been a challenge because of the bullet-like speed he speaks at. And the way he inhales like he's just surfaced from showing you how long he can hold his breath underwater. He's the kind of guy who bolts out of bed at four in the morning and gets straight to work in his office. Well, his garage slash office. So this kind of work that relies on energy and grit really suits Greg. Plus, there were the unexpected fringe benefits. I met my wife there. My wife is a former farm worker. And um, I met her through the work. And I mean, we've been married for nearly 40 years. So, I mean, unexpected things happen. The other big reward for taking this type of work was I wasn't required to wear a tie to work, which was very important to me. We dressed business casual, uh, no, not even business casual, uh, jeans and usually a button shirt, at least. That was the the concession we made to uh, fashion. By 2005, Greg had been representing farm workers in Florida for several decades. And that's when he stepped into the final sugarcane case against Osceola Farms, a farm owned by the billionaire Cuban brothers, the Fanuls. They needed a scrappy guy with his expertise on the team. But there was a long way to go. The Osceola case was on life support. The lawyers were exhausted and... They didn't have any money. And Dave's practice was in shambles. Exhausted and broke. It costs a lot to fight a case for 15 years. Plus, this $5.30 theory based on the contract just wasn't working in the trials. They kept losing. So they needed a new angle, one which could win over a jury. We decided that since we were not getting anywhere, you know, it's like the, the definition of insanity, of course, is to keep doing the same thing and hope for a different result. So we decided to approach it as, as a wage and hour case and show that the guys were cheated on the hours that were recorded for them, that they actually worked more hours than they were given credit for. This is what the cutters were telling them, that they'd work a 10-hour day cutting sugarcane, but their pay slip would only say something like six hours. The lawyers believed this was so the sugar companies could pay the workers less money, but they needed proof. We were interested in what we viewed as the core issue, that there had been a systematic underreporting of the hours by the company. What Greg and Dave wanted to show was that the workers' time cards were reporting fewer hours than they'd actually worked. So we're back to that moment we started this whole episode on, in the hot storeroom filled with boxes. This is when they discovered those envelopes, showing... The actual accurate time that the buses were taking these men to and from the fields. Which didn't match the times written on the cane tickets inside. A smoking gun. Evidence, they were thinking, that the hours were shorted. We found the proof that was just amazing. 
Dave's excited in his own way. Well, first of all, it's not my style to be jumping up and down. But yeah, it was definitely, it was very cool finding it. Very cool. Uh, because up to that point, we had no idea that anything like that existed. Then began the serious grunt work, going through all the envelopes, recording the times on all the cane tickets, and cross-checking them against the bus times written on the envelopes. And there's not a team of associates or paralegals doing the grunt work. It's Dave and Greg. If you think about it, on a single day, there were roughly a thousand tickets. You can't imagine how tedious it was. Just going through a single day took a long time. So we realized this was going to be just a a tremendous undertaking to do this. But we also saw it was a clear path forward. We do this carefully and get this data done, and we show the jury that this was going on. The jury will get this. This is not complicated at all. But the company could have said a couple of things to defend themselves against this accusation that they shorted the cutter's hours. Osceola could have argued that the men refused to work, that they didn't want to cut any more cane. They worked, say, four hours and then said, I've had enough, and just sat on the bus for four hours. And when that supposedly happened, the supervisors put a little code on the cane tickets. R for refuse. But the cutters themselves told Greg and Dave that this wasn't true. You wouldn't have guys sitting for four hours on a bus waiting to return from the field. That didn't happen. And the testimony on that was pretty consistent. All the workers Greg spoke to were sure about one thing. I never, ever stopped work early. I always worked the full amount. Former cutter Victor Blackwood also confirms that. Although the companies would sometimes write R for refuse, this was simply not the case. They put... Five and a half hours, and then they put two and a half hours, refuse. Me never refuse work yet, because I love to work. The harder you work, the easier you live. Another excuse for why the hours didn't match was that the men were sick. That's why they stopped working. They would show that all of a sudden, at 2 o'clock, 28 people got sick. That seemed unlikely. We thought a jury would see right through this. By the way, we asked the sugarcane companies and their trade group for an interview or to respond to the claim that they underpaid the workers, and they never replied. To find more ammunition, though, they'd need more witnesses. So Dave and Greg went to Jamaica to look for more plaintiffs, former cutters to represent, and to gather more firsthand testimony, cutters who'd say, my hours were shorted. I went to the Jamaican press, the print press and the uh, radio and TV, and said, well, the word needs to go out to everybody, everybody who worked at Osceola Farms. Greg sent press releases saying, the lawsuit claims that Osceola routinely paid the men less than the hourly wage guaranteed in their work contracts and that the company falsified its records to cover up these violations of law. The court action seeks to recover an estimated $10 million in additional pay. And then at the end, if you were a cutter during these years, here's our number. Call us. We want to hear from you. Well, we were astonished. We were bombarded by calls. Out of the potential, I think it was about 2,500 workers who were eligible during this time period to bring a claim, over 1,500 responded. And they called us not only from Jamaica, but from the other Caribbean islands and workers who had settled in the United States in the interim also called us and said, I want to bring my claim. Greg and Dave eventually had all the evidence they thought they needed. The tickets, the envelopes, the interviews with workers saying, yeah, the company falsified my payslips. They were ready. If we got the case to trial, we were going to win. I've rarely been as confident of this. We were going to win this case. The evidence was just overwhelming. This win would mean a lot for the lawyers. They'd sacrificed so much. Dave, in particular, who'd been at this for more than a decade. So far, he'd lost every case that had gone to trial. Dave, increasingly, his practice sort of dwindled and more and more of his time was taken up with sugarcane work. Dave, who'd been, I think, doing reasonably well in his prior practice, was all of a sudden not making any money because these cases were not paying off. So Dave's practice was 
slipping badly. And it would it coincided with Dave's marriage was breaking up. I think it was a tough time for Dave in a lot of ways. It consumed a great deal of my professional life. It cost me both in terms of out-of-pocket expenses, but much more in terms of other work that I couldn't do. It wrecked any plans I had of an early retirement. Working on the jury trials was grueling, but this new evidence with the envelopes was the last little push, a drop of nitrous oxide in their tanks. Maybe, finally, after all the years and work, they'd get a win. More after the break. So we're going along feeling pretty good. Greg and Dave's elbows are well and truly greased, going to Jamaica, organizing the envelopes, tracking all the data. It's going to be worth it. That's their mantra. Then they get this letter. And then all of a sudden, we get a request from the other side saying the court order the plaintiffs to post the required cost bond. Post a bond? Huh? What is this all about? Well, bizarrely, you've got to go back to 1828 to answer that. The sugarcane companies are digging deep here, going back to a law from nearly 200 years ago. You can't make this stuff up. Florida passed a statute to protect its residents from lawsuits from people residing outside of Florida. This was a pretty obscure law, passed before Florida was even a state. Basically, it was intended to protect people living in Florida from frivolous lawsuits. So let's say someone from outside Florida sued a Florida resident with a frivolous case, a case bound to fail. The Floridian who got sued would sometimes be awarded costs, meaning the person who sued them would have to pay their legal costs. But if the person bringing the case didn't live in Florida, it might be hard to track them down and get the payment. So this bond statute was created. Before you could sue the person living in Florida, you had to put down $100 as a backup in case you ultimately had to pay their costs. $100 was a pretty large sum of money 200 years ago. By the 21st century, nobody really used that law, and it was so antiquated that by 2016 it was repealed altogether. But back in 2007, Dave gets this notice about posting a bond in the mail. He's thinking... I probably shouldn't say my the, the actual words I would have used, but yeah, I knew it was a problem. When they made this demand, we had 1,500 plaintiffs, almost all of whom were living outside of Florida. So essentially, we needed to come up with $150,000 worth of bonds, and we didn't have it. If I had one or two or five clients, sure, I'll, I'll front the money. But $150,000? I, I don't have it. The only way to fight this meant going back to court to appeal. Again. But Greg and Dave do it. So they're in front of a panel of three judges pleading with them. Please don't make us pay this bond. We said, look, if this is going to be required, these poor Jamaicans who cannot sue in any other court. The only place they can sue Osceola Farms is in Florida. What you're saying is if you don't have $100, you don't have the right to sue them, which is totally against the Constitution. That was our argument. These Jamaican men deserve to have their day in court, they say. Then the lawyers for the sugarcane company, Osceola Farms, respond. This is one of the companies owned by the billionaire Cuban exiles, Pepe and Alfie Van Hul saying, you know, the poor Fonholes, if they don't have this $100 cost mod, goodness knows how they're going to survive because they're only worth gazillions of dollars. You know, it's, things are tough on Palm Beach. Okay, I'm pretty sure that's not what they said. But they made their argument. It was the Fonholes, the classic Goliath, claiming they were now the David, the poor injured party that needed this protection of $100 from each of these starving Jamaicans. After each side presenting their arguments in court, they wait. Months pass. Will the judges agree with Dave and Greg? Or will they be crippled by the costs? Then the decision comes down. There were three judges. They needed two of their votes to win. So Dave and Greg read the decision. By a two-to-one margin, we lost. That was the end of the case. 
I'd love to say I was surprised and disappointed, but I, I disappointed, sure, but surprised, no. Well, it felt terrible. I mean, because we felt terrible for the guys because this is what is wrong with the legal system. A legal system that's designed to produce justice was using procedural niceties to essentially tell people who are poor, because you're poor, you don't even have a chance to come to ask for justice from this court. When this was done, what did you feel for the workers? Um, well, I wouldn't have spent close to 30 years trying to help them if I didn't think they deserved it. And I have been to enough workers' homes in Jamaica to know how little, really, it would have taken to make an enormous, a measurable difference in their lives. I've been to houses in Jamaica that are made out of cinder block that have no running water. They have spaces for windows, but there's no glass in them, okay? And the difference that these cases would have made for men like that is measurable. After reading the decision, Greg Shell went for a long run. He needed to clear his head. Then he sat down and wrote a letter to be sent to the 1,400 men in Jamaica, letting them know the case was lost. They wouldn't see a penny. Well, it's pretty tough because you sort of say, you were cheated, and we all agree that you're cheated, and all the evidence shows you're cheated, but because of the horrible rules, and, you know, you will never get a chance to tell your story. An important aside here, there was something else that was going on at this time. In the 1990s, the sugarcane industry in Florida stopped hiring men from Jamaica or other West Indian countries to cut the cane. Instead, they turned to machines, machines that couldn't sue them. The thousands of men who had previously relied on cutting sugarcane in the U.S. for money had to find another way to make a living. And actually, in 2005, a representative of Florida Crystals said, the decision to mechanize the company and cut jobs came about partly because of the lawsuits. And I have to remind you here, it was the lawyers who initiated this case, not the cutters. So if you look at it the way the company is suggesting, well, the lawyers thought up this case just to make money, and then they cost all of the workers their jobs. The... Growers have mechanized, and I wonder what you f if you think that this case. Um... No, I do not. To anticipate your question, they were going to mechanize. They would have done it sooner, but the machines weren't good enough. Maybe the fact that they were confronted with the obligation to pay what they said they were going to inspired them to to stop a little bit earlier. But I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to accept blame for trying to make them do what they said they were going to do. Edward Tuddenham, the lawyer who helped launch this case, has a different take. Do you think that your lawsuit hastened the mechanization of the cane fields? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. With the cost of lawsuits and perhaps increasing wages, Edward says... It immediately became more economical to just mechanize. And they did. In the aftermath of all this, when the sound and fury of legal arguments and testimony has died down to a dull roar, it's natural to ask, why? Why did they lose this case? Greg's take is that when the case went from a class action in front of a judge to five jury trials, the lawyers representing the Cutters simply couldn't compete. He likens it to war. The slogging, sort of <laughs> drawn-out trench warfare that they ended up being drawn into. And that trench warfare they were bound to lose because they did not have the troops that the other side did. And the other side can just keep hiring lawyers and just keep going and going, which is what they did. Greg has witnessed what he considers as Dave's evolution throughout this case. Oh, Dave, Dave has totally changed. And now he sounds like the most radical lawyer out there, convinced that the fix is in, convinced that it, the system is totally biased against poor people. To this day, Dave thinks they should have won. 
I will go to my grave feeling that way. And, you know, there are some cases you lose and you say to yourself, well, okay, I understand why we lost. But uh, this is not one of them. Do you regret taking it? Nah, it's a decision I made. I, I, I can live with a decision. Do I wish we'd have won? Sure. Would it have made my life financially much better? Absolutely. But uh, I'd probably do it again. I mean, if I thought I had a chance of winning, I'd do it. Sure. Marie Brenner, who wrote the article in Vanity Fair about the case 20 years ago, still feels angry over how the case has turned out and imagines how she would have felt had Greg and Dave's side won. I would have felt that American justice worked in this case. I would have felt, okay, they went to court and they won. Right prevailed. But they didn't win. They lost. And the workers lost their jobs. And the fields got mechanized. And so big industry and big sugar big-footed them. More after the break. Dave continues working. He's 74 now. He couldn't put a dollar amount on how much it cost him over the last 30 years, but he guesses he sunk more than a million dollars into the lawsuits. A confident attorney whizzing around Florida on his Harley Davidson, he had the kind of energy of someone who'd be hanging out with a dude from the Big Lebowski. Now, he doesn't ride much. He's had six hip surgeries and four back surgeries. And these days, Dave is the carer for a woman who's his sort of girlfriend. Sort of, because it's been a tumultuous relationship. She struggled with addiction. Since the pandemic, she's had two strokes and is now living with disabilities. Dave takes care of her. Yeah, but it's, it's been a bizarre on-and-off relationship. She doesn't have anything. She doesn't have anybody else. And, and we get along. I play pool. I play in league one night a week, and I play... Saturday afternoons with friends and usually Wednesday evenings with friends. And that's, that's, you know, that's, that's my life. It's not, not real interesting uh, or exciting anymore. One final note about the case. There were two settlements. In 1999, U.S. Sugar settled for $5.1 million. They avoided a lot of bad press by settling early. $1 million covered legal costs, and $4 million went to the workers. Each man received $95 per year they worked for U.S. Sugar. Then with Osceola, that last case, there was also a small payout. Practically nothing compared to the $51 million summary judgment. It was around $100,000 for about 80 men who had settled in Florida, men who didn't need to post that $100 bond. It kind of went out with a whimper rather than a bang for me. It's not what I wanted, but it's better than nothing. These guys got screwed, pure and simple. Two of the men who got a bit of money from the settlement were former cane cutters Selvin Grant and Victor Blackwood. Victor cut cane for 12 years. He spent four on Osceola Farms. He got $500. Selvin spent four years cutting cane, two on Osceola Farms. He got $700. I feel bad because I worked so hard and need more money. Either I was robbed blind. Robbed blind. Selvin thinks back on the time he cut his finger with his cane-cutting machete, the worst pain he ever felt, or the time a razor-sharp sugarcane leaf poked him in the eye, and then just $700. Selvin felt like he deserved more. I needed money. (laughs) We did speak to some cutters who got several thousand dollars in compensation, but it's hard to say what monetary amount really would have been enough. The experiences they had cutting sugarcane in Florida really changed everyone we spoke to. Victor is scarred by his time at Osceola Farm. The long days, the danger of the work, the barracks where they lived. In fact, he says it was so similar to incarceration that it kept him on the straight and narrow. It's just like I I was in prison. That's why I tried my best. Not to try to commit no crimes. I'm 68 year old now, and praise the Lord, I've never been arrested, nor I've never been convicted, nor nothing, because 
whole solar company make me experience what is prison life. Victor just couldn't keep doing it after a while. Do you remember um, the day that you quit? Yes. Yes, I remember. It was the day before the harvest ended. Victor told his supervisor he wasn't coming back the next year. He was a nice man. He tried to coax me. Coax me. Please don't quit, Victor, he pleaded. Then Victor said something which is equal parts jaw-dropping and eye-widening. I asked you if you excuse me language, what I'm going to say. Excuse me, miss, what I'm going to say. Sure. I said to him, I said, super, if the cane grow upon my wife, pussy, him have to pay somebody for cut off. I'm not going to cut it, so I'm not cutting no more sugar cane. Even if the sugar cane grew from his wife's private parts, Victor wouldn't cut the cane. And so when, he, when he's here, he said that, in final, he me serious. And he said, all right, Vic, wish you all the best. I said, okay, super, wish you good luck too. And that's it. I never turned back. That was in 1989. Victor first went back to Jamaica, where he had his own farm. He lived in a house he was able to afford thanks to his 12 years of cutting cane. 16 years ago, he relocated permanently to Florida. And since then, he's been working at the same job, paving roads. When you took a job here and you compare it with your job cutting cane, what strikes you about the difference? Well, this job here is better. Yeah, you make more money. You don't have nobody rushing you. You can eat anytime you want to eat on the job. And if you're sick and you call in, say you're sick, you, you have two days they pay you for it the same way. And right now, I have three weeks vacation every year because after I work, when I work the first year, I get one. When I do two years, I, I do get two. When I do 10 years, I get three. I'm making like $204 a night. Victor seems really happy. He's been with his wife for around 40 years. He owns his own house in the U.S. and has another big house in Jamaica. I'm doing pretty, pretty good. Two years ago, I buy my brand new BMW cash. Yes. I'm living really like a fat rat right now. Selvin sees positives, too. He says cutting cane was the hardest, roughest job he ever had. But at the same time, he sees the farm work visa as the start of his life. The money he earned allowed him to build a house in Jamaica, and he managed to get a visa to come to the U.S. He married an American woman, and he's lived here since the 90s. The reason why I say change my life, it is the only opportunity I didn't get at that time to start out, to start to start a life. Even though it was so hard, it was the only opportunity I get. Maybe if it wasn't the, the farmer, I wouldn't be here right now. I would maybe still in Jamaica, try to get a visa to come up in another way. But that is the starting point of my life, the farmer. These days, Selvin works in construction and has his own pressure cleaning business. His days are spent climbing, cleaning, pretty nimble work for a guy in his 60s. I'm 64 years old when I feel like 17. I could do anything right now like when I was 17 years old. One other thing he can still do like a young man is father children. Selvin has six kids. The oldest is 41 and the youngest is still a baby. Selvin's nickname is Power, after all. He credits it to his diet, Jamaican food, particularly snapper fish. I steam it down. I love it when it's steamed. That's my number one way. Or the second way, I cook it, cook it in soup. Thirdly, I, I fried it. But the number one way is steam it down with some cockroaches and some vegetables like carrots and a little seasoned salt. Oh my God, it's so sweet. Fish is so very good for you. Victor's a bit older, 68, and also says he looks pretty good for his age. His secret? Oh, the old Jamaican food. Jamaican jerk chicken fish and yam and dumpling. So you're saying it's the Jamaican food. So you're saying that if I eat Jamaican food, yes. I will look great when I'm 68 years old. Yes. <laughs> Noted. 
So that's the cutters, the lawyers, and we'll talk about the Fun Hools in a moment. But what about the bigger issues at stake in this story? The questions about whether a poor worker can get a fair shake in the American justice system or whether justice favors the wealthy. That is still very much a relevant question today. And the issue of environmental justice, the delicate balance between welcoming industry and providing jobs, while making sure business doesn't boom at the expense of healthy communities and healthy wildlife. Most people agree that the Everglades should be restored, but who should pay for it? Also entangled in this case is the debate over the product, sugar. The average American eats about three pounds of it every week, several times the recommended amount. Is it too late to put that genie back in the bottle and get sugar out of our bread and peanut butter and toothpaste? And then there's a very current debate about whether American taxpayers should be giving billions to sugar companies every year. Not only do we write checks to these corporations when sugar prices fall, we also pay more for our groceries because imports are limited, meaning U.S. sugar companies don't exist in a truly competitive market. The Farm Bill comes up for renewal in 2023, and buried within nearly 1,000 pages is the Sugar Program, a fat package of corporate welfare for the sugar industry. Lobbyists are already meeting with politicians, asking that those subsidies be maintained. The subject of lobbyists and the incredible influence they wield brings us right back to the Funhuls, the billionaire brothers who pull the strings behind a whole phalanx of lobbyists. They're not the only billionaires who've built their fortunes on the backs of low-wage laborers and government checks, but they are among the most wealthy and the most powerful. Where are they now? More after the break. Well, they wouldn't speak to us, but they're still big players in the sugar industry, and they're still well-connected. For example, in 2015, when Marco Rubio announced he was running for president, he immediately walked off stage and into the embrace of Pepe Van Hool. Van Hool's donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to his presidential campaign. Their companies still employ an army of lobbyists, and as recently as September 2021, Alfie Van Hool was spotted with another of his political friends. He was hopping onto his $23 million yacht with Bill Clinton. And there's still no strangers to controversy. When Jeffrey Epstein's little black book leaked recently, Pepe Van Hool's name appeared. It was alongside thousands of others, including royals, politicians, rock stars. Though I must stress... This doesn't mean Pepe was doing anything illegal with Epstein. And then in 2010, it was revealed that Pepe's executive assistant, Chloe Black, had been married to former KKK leader David Duke, and she is the current wife of Don Black, a former KKK Grand Wizard and member of the American Nazi Party. An ironic side note here, she also at one time helped with public relations at Glades Academy. That's a Fon Hool-supported school explicitly aimed at raising Black and Latino children out of poverty. And an even more ironic side note, her husband was once imprisoned for attempting an armed overthrow of the government of a Caribbean island. Speaking of the Caribbean, the Fon Hools still employ cane cutters in the Dominican Republic. Thousands of Haitians work for them there, It's been reported that many are housed in shacks without electricity, and the compounds are patrolled by armed company police. The cutters often earn as little as $3 a day. Despite the sugar bill quotas, some of the sugar gets sent to the U.S. You eat it. And of course, they're still rich. One thing they splash their cash on is charity. They're known as massive philanthropists, but also on personal investments. Pepe Van Hool sold his 2,000-plus-square-foot condo for $5.2 million. It's often reported that their company, Florida Crystals, brings in several billion dollars per year. After all the reporting we've done on this story, a recurring theme has emerged. It seems, for everyone involved, it's like the sugarcane industry is a ghost— 
something that continues to haunt them, that they can't seem to escape or let go of. In fact, Dave can trace his connection way back to one of his first ever cases as a lawyer. The very first court-appointed case I got back in 1977 was a first-degree murder case. Dave had only been admitted to practice law six months earlier. The guy Dave was representing was the getaway driver during a murder robbery at a sugarcane mill. And which mill was it? I think it was Osceola. The same sugarcane farm he sued. The same company at the center of the case that had consumed his life years later. Yeah, this is a funny coincidence. And if we return to other characters in the series, remember Stephanie from episode one? She was the student filmmaker who snuck onto the sugarcane fields and camps to document the lives of the men there. In 1990, Stephanie released her film, H2 Worker, and it was incredibly well-received. It won a Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize. Winning first prize at Sundance and being invited to Cannes, you know, that was very professionally rewarding at a time when I didn't even have a profession, really. It was the catalyst for the rest of her career. Meanwhile, there was Alec Wilkinson. He went down to Florida to write an article for The New Yorker about the sugarcane cutters. He thought it was just an adventure. But he ended up going back there year after year, investigating and forging close relationships. And he didn't write just one article. He published a whole book on his experiences called Big Sugar. I did come to feel deeply indignant on behalf of, of the cutters, and I felt obliged to try to describe what I regarded as an outrage. And you know, it's been kind of surprising talking to Alec about the impact of working on this story. He's had such an accomplished career. He's written 10 books, won a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Robert F. Kennedy Book Award, and a Lindhurst Prize. You might think his time in the cane fields was a blip on his literary radar, but really... I never had an experience like that with any other kind of work over the 40 years that I've been doing this. And one thing that was even more surprising was the impact of one man, one cutter, on Alec. Oh, Nathan. Oh, Nathan. I, I, I wonder where Nathan is often. Nathan Nelson was a cutter that I just, um, I got very close to. I went to see him twice in Jamaica. He was a, um, I can see him in my imagination now. Nathan was just a, a very kind, very generous, very long-suffering, very handsome in his dignity. He was cool. You know, I just thought a lot of, a lot of when I was young, I wanted to write about people I thought were cool because they they were smart, or they had interesting ideas in the world, or they did interesting things, or they exemplified some quality that I found alluring. And Nathan demonstrated a number of these. To this day, Alec longs to see Nathan again. Oh, it, I mean, I'm almost... Uh, I have to recover my composure. Just hearing his name and the thought of it, I would love to see Nathan again. So we couldn't let this go either. We sent a reporter in Jamaica to track Nathan down. It wasn't good news. Nathan had passed away. But we wanted to give Alex some closure. So we called him up to tell him what we'd found. You know, I've thought about him all these years. I'm, I can't believe he's died. Um, he was a lovely, lovely person. He was um, very quietly charismatic. Incredibly handsome, tall, dignified, funny. He was a really lovely, great person. Kind of a best friend type, you know, a true friend type. I really just was over the moon about him. I'd show pictures of Nathan to people in New York and say, that's my friend. It really demonstrates the impact of reporting this story, of delving into this industry, meeting the people. 40 years later, Alec is still thinking about the Cutters, about Nathan. This story begins and ends with the cane cutters. And even they can't seem to free themselves from the sugar cane ghost. 
Victor made his dramatic exit from cutting cane in the 80s, but even in the last year he's found himself back on Osceola Farm. Not cutting cane this time, mind you. I understand that you some you have gone back to Osceola actually doing this paving work, is that right? Yes. When I go there and see the place, I have the memory of in the 80s when I used to work there. Sometimes, when he's paving, he turns to his colleagues, looks out over the stalks stretching to the horizon, and he says, I used to cut cane here. And for Selvin, the experience of cutting cane was also an indelible one. Decades later, he actually still dreams of it. Maybe like a couple of years ago, I've been dreaming that I'm cutting sugar cane. The reason Selvin knows he's been dreaming about cutting sugar cane He's bashing his hand back and forth with an imaginary machete, cutting sugarcane in his sleep. You know that I use my hand and chop in my bed, sleeping, and hit myself? He even wakes himself up with his pretend chopping. Yeah, I can imagine chopping in, in my bed, sleeping, and he use my hand and hit myself. Those years spent cutting and all the roughness are still buried somewhere in Selvin's subconscious. And they still come out, like a memory zombie resurrecting itself in his dreams. I don't know, maybe um, it was so hard, I still have my mind on there. Even though it was tough, the hardest job in the world, Selvin thinks. He says he'd still do it if he had to. Yeah, really. If that was the only job in the world, I would still do it. Just to survive. Just to survive. I've never cut cane, but from what I've seen of the work, I doubt I'd make the decision that Selvin would, even if cutting cane were the last job on earth. It breaks my heart to think about Selvin and Victor, stepping off that plane in Florida, their hearts filled with hope and optimism, truly believing that they could work hard enough to better their lives, to earn a slice of the American dream. But that hope was destined to be disappointed. The optimism was unfounded. This nation needed the strong backs and diligent labor of these men, and the industry they helped build brought in untold riches. But they saw almost none of that wealth. Nearly all of it went to owners, like the Fun Hools. I can't help but feel that my country let these men down that we allowed abusive systems, both economic and legal, to steal their labor and their time. There's a song that was written about the Cutters, the H2 workers, as they're called after their visa, by a Jamaican musician called Mutabaruka. It hits on a lot of the themes from this story and its broader message, that we live in this scaffolding, centuries of inequality, the systems and history around us that means some people are poor, some are rich, Some people get justice, and others don't. And it hits on the purity, the nucleus of the story of the Cutters. The purity of being dumped into an unequal world, navigating this scaffolding and still, still, still trying to make your life better, just to survive. The legal case that inspired this story has ended, but the big sugar story is far from over. The market for candy alone is tens of billions of dollars. And the United States on its own has one million acres of sugarcane that produce more than four million tons of sugar every year. And just like big oil, big tobacco, and big pharma, big sugar wields incredible power in U.S. politics. You heard tape of President Nixon calling the sugar lobby the most effective in the world. So effective, they're murderous. Well, that lobbying has continued in the decades since Nixon resigned, courtesy of the Van Hools and their industry colleagues. Then there's the impact of sugarcane harvesting on the environment and the added sugars invading so much of the food we eat. And while men like Victor and Selvin may not be cutting cane by hand in the United States anymore, the backbreaking work continues elsewhere in order to meet the insatiable hunger for sweetness all over the world. A recent report found cutters in the Dominican Republic had their wages withheld, were forced to work terribly long hours, and faced abusive living conditions. In fact, in the fall of 2022, 
the United States government banned imports from farms in the Dominican Republic owned by Central Romana Corp. And you know who owns a significant stake in that company? You've guessed it, the Von Hools. Back in Florida, there remains a major harvesting issue in America's sugar towns, some of the poorest towns in the country. The routine burning of cane fields, which is only permitted when the wind blows away from the wealthy neighborhoods and in the direction of poor areas. You heard that right. Residents say the smoke and ash falling on their homes is making people sick, while farmers and other residents argue that these same communities depend on sugar production jobs to make a living. It's complicated. But with renewed attention and ongoing activism, we might be on the brink of something big. Our land, our health, workers' rights, and now the fundamental economics of the industry in the U.S. are front and center. Let me explain. Every five years, Congress proposes, debates, and passes legislation that sets policies for agriculture, nutrition, conservation, and forestry. This is the massive Farm Bill, which is once again up for renewal for the first time since 2018. It's an 807-page piece of legislation that covers everything from crop insurance to healthy food access for low-income families. So, both houses of Congress are haggling over the tens of billions of dollars at stake, and many, many eyes are on the Farm Bill's sugar program. The program's import quotas, price floors, and subsidized loans make sugar more expensive for consumers and mean a whole lot more money for the companies that dominate the industry. To be clear, we're not questioning whether farmers should have the opportunity to make a living, but we are pointing out that environmentalists, free market advocates, social justice advocates, and the elected politicians who have turned down donations from sugar companies are questioning whether a massively profitable industry like sugar needs to be enriched through government policies. On the other side, of course, the industry and its lobbyists are fighting for the status quo. All the backroom lobbying is now very much out in the open. Here's how former Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey put it to us before he left office. Currently, the U.S. sugar program is a bad deal for American consumers and federal taxpayers. The program's labyrinth of price controls and subsidies lavish corporate welfare on a handful of wealthy sugar producers. And finally, there's the science of sugar. We continue to learn more about how it affects our bodies, how addictive it can be, and its role in conditions like tooth decay, heart disease, and diabetes. Yet thanks to decades of industry propaganda, many of us still worry more about grams of fat than the added sugar found in so much of what we eat. If nothing else, the 25-year court case on behalf of workers, the government policies, the cane burning, and most fundamentally, our health, should make all of us look more closely at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But I'm guessing it's going to take a little while longer before we can truly reckon with the enticing sweet power of big sugar. Big Sugar is produced by Imagine Audio, Weekday Fun Productions, and Novel for iHeartMedia. The series is hosted by me, Celeste Headley. Big Sugar is produced by Jeff Eisenman at Weekday Fun Productions. It's executive produced by Kara Welker, Nathan Clokey, and Marie Brenner. Story editor and executive producer is Joe Wheeler. The researcher is Nadia Mehdi. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolf. Our fact checker is Sona Avakian. Field reporting by Amber Amortigi and Zara Burton. Sound design and mixing by Eli Block, Naomi Clark, and Daniel Kempson. Original music composed by Troy McCubbin at Alloy Tracks. Additional music by Nicholas Alexander. Thanks to Eleanor Biggs, Rosie Collier, Tara Godomsky, Robert Gagno, Rene DeSego, Anna Sinfield, Hannah Cassavetti, and Julie Steinhagen. Special thanks to Alec Wilkinson, author of the book Big Sugar, and Stephanie Black, director of the documentary H2 Worker. Big Sugar is based on the Vanity Fair article In the Kingdom of Big Sugar by Marie Brenner. Hi. 
Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is... To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my hosts as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.